I was walking in Cornwall. Alright. And we got stalked. By the beast above me. That's fucking great. We're, we're, in a, we're in a forest looking. It's like September, it's about 10 o'clock, so it's dark. Mm. And we're, we're wandering around this forest looking for somewhere to put hammocks up to sleep. And there's these, like, big eyes out in the forest reflecting the, the, the head torches back at us. Yeah. And you'd see it and, it and then turn away back at the path and, and look like it's gone. And then if, if like 10, 20 seconds later, it's somewhere else. It's in front of you. It's now to the right. It's a bit closer and it's a bit further away. And it was just following us through this wood. And it, you th- you feel how sort of creepy that was. And then you think that if you were in, say, you know, Europe or if you were in America and you knew that there were actually native animals there that were I big g- enough. As you said that, I got really scared. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just imagine the terror if you're hiking in the woods in sort of like, you know, the the Appalachian Mountains in America and the same thing happens and you can't just go, nah, it's, it's just a wildcat or it's, you know, something like that. You've, you've I'm got not the... feeling it, you know, when you've, you think you've left the gas on. Yeah. But, but you, you've gone, oh my God, I didn't put my food in the bear box. <laughs> <laughs> Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... There's times to be assertive. Right! Shut your face! Shut your face and listen, (laughs) I'm about to tell you a story, and it's going to be a great story. I'm excited. Yeah, so this story, it, it covers a big chunk of time this one i love that you're not ready for this one okay so this story starts in the late middle ages yeah way back when i love the way back whens and the three words for this one vomiting yep bloodletting purging i feel like they're the same thing they're not the the different ways of expelling things from a body definitely but they're definitely Isn't purging the same as vomiting vomiting is when it comes out of one end Oh, purging is just everywhere. No, purging is the other end. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's making people. What? Oh, it's I giving you people could, like, a runny bum. Like, you drink some crazy concoction. That's that's new agey. We're oh, we're going it? old school. You ready? Hmm? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Oh. In the early twelve forties, its new bishop, the bishop of Bethlehem, he had an issue. It's fortunate. <laughs> The town had been plundered following a Turkish conquest, and what little money the church had had left in the area had been sold by his predecessor, the former Bishop of Bethlehem, for personal gain. He'd sold his money for personal gain? No, he'd sold what the church had. Oh, right. So the church had, like, relics and, you know, gold things. Special hats. And special hats, and he'd sold everything that wasn't nailed down and then run off with the proceeds. So the, the Diocese of Bethlehem is essentially broke. <clears throat> which is a bit embarrassing when it's the oh, birth, to get birthplace of your saviour. Savior. Presumably he wasn't from there, he just got moved in. Well, yeah. We've got a great gig for you, Phil. Well, I'll, I'll let you see if you think this is a Bethlehem native, okay? Bishop Geoffredo de Profiti. Now say it in an English accent. Bishop Geoffredo de Profiti. Okay. For twas his name. Had a plan. Australian? Yeah. He used what little money he had left... The last scrapings of what they had in Bethlehem. Scratch cards. To open a priory in London, England. What is a priory? A small um, place for um, 
religious people to be. I'm guessing it's like a small church, but they'll also take like in a monastery people. or a yeah, or like a, a nunnery. Yeah, a little bit like that. All right. And I know it sounds a bit left field. You need to make money, so you're spending money. But that's not that's the, that's the first law of <laughs> economics, isn't it? So, well, the thing is about that time, the Crusades were still in full swing. And Gifredo, he reasoned that if he provided an almshouse for a few poor Englishmen, he could seek donations from God-fearing Londoners to help refill the coffers of the Holy Land. Because he can basically say, if you give us money, we'll be sending it to Bethlehem, where it can do good works at the origin of the Christian church, essentially. This is where this guy was born. You've got to make sure that that's ticking over. Um, He secured some prime real estate next to an open sewer. And by 1247, the new order of Our Lady of Bethlehem was opened. And it served its purpose quite well uh, until the property was seized by Edward III, the king, because England was at war with France by this time. And he didn't want a Catholic priory funneling money out of the country as the Pope was on the French side. Right. So you, you don't really want money being sent from your country to indirectly to probably help your enemies, yeah. So whilst under the control of the crown in 1403, a charity commissioner reported that along with the regular destitutes it was catering for, so you're down and out, so you're homeless people, uh, Our Lady of Bethlehem was looking after six men considered to be insane. He also reported that the priory... Who considered them yeah. to be insane? Well, What's the benchmark at this point? But, uh, very, very low. Yeah. I mean, you're talking any mental illness that would now be easily treatable probably at that time would have you marked as uh, being insane so the priory also had access to four pairs of manacles 11 chains six heavy duty locks and two pairs of stocks so they were perfectly suited to look after these insane individuals oh good yeah obviously this was a niche that needed filling because within a generation our lady of bethlehem became bethlehem hospital a charitable institution for the confinement and treatment of the insane treatment however what a loose term yeah locally it was quickly given the nickname bedlam oh great i'm so glad we're doing this the hospital was managed a bit like a restrictive hotel and it was run by a series of keepers so you didn't have a doctor you had an innkeeper essentially Uh, these people would seek to balance the cost of running the hospital against the donations received Uh, and the inmates were only provided with very um, we're talking very basic care Uh, so (laughs) Enough food to keep you alive, and not potentially, yeah, and <laughs> potentially bedding. Um, but family members could provide extra funds in order to make their relatives more comfortable. So, uh, basically, you better have some family who are who are willing to fork out a bit extra. Yeah. Generally speaking, the keepers would embezzle as much money as they could, uh, whilst ensuring that their relatives and friends received well-paid jobs within the hospital. So it's very quickly turned into a bit of nepotism there. Uh, by 1619, oh, and we're back. Yeah. <laughs> so by 1619, it was decided that there had to be a better way to ensure good quality care for the unfortunates in Bedlam. Step forward, Helkiah Crook. He sounds evil. Because Crook is his surname. No, it's the Helkiah. Helkiah Crook. Hel- Helkiah Crook. Ah, but he was a man with actual medical training who was appointed by King James the ah, First himself. What medical trainer at that point? Yeah. Okay, so it was also true that while practising as a physician, he had many, many lawsuits taken out against him. 
And it was also true that he'd originally been rejected by the College of Physicians for rudeness, bullying and slander. But at least he was a medical professional of yeah. a kind. Not just innkeepers anymore. Who could be trusted, yeah. So, so he turned up with his box of leeches. Well, no, within months he was being investigated for financial irregularities <laughs> and accusation of impropriety against a female patient. Fucking hell. Uh, amazingly, he lasted until 1633. So how many so years is that? That was um, over a decade. Fucking hell. Yeah, after that, because that happened almost immediately. Uh, when he was finally dismissed after an investigation learned that he was taking enough money each year to fund the hospital two times over while the inmates were starving as no food was being bought. Okay, I know. It would have been a better fate for them. Well, on the plus side, Are though... they doing trepanning and all this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> on the plus side, we'll get into the treatments. In 1630, he began referring to the insane people he cared for as patients, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Well, he's calling them patients. So he was accepting that they had a medical need. And he was regularly providing them with beer. Oh, Because it helped quieten them down. No, he's a saint, I agree. Yeah. Um, when we say patients, the inmates received no recognisable medical care. Instead, they received regular beatings. And um, when they became disruptive, they were restrained. So he had very little patience. He had very little patience with his patients. He did. Even when the position of hospital physician had been established... Just wait 30 seconds for people to stop laughing. So okay. <laughs> even after they'd established the position of hospital physician, uh, there were references to amputations having to take place due to the open wounds caused by shackles becoming infected. So these people were pulling against their restraints to the point that they were getting open sores and they weren't being treated to the point where you had to chop a, a you know, hand off. And then, of course, you've got the big problem of how do you shackle someone when they don't have a hand because the chain's just going to slip right off. So it's a real problem for these doctors. It is, yeah, and you don't want to get clubbed by a wrist. <laughs> no. Um, so despite this, the clamour for beds was so great that the governors of Bedlam were continually turning down applications for admission because you didn't just get taken in, you had to apply. And in 1674, they concluded that they needed to expand because they were doing such a good job. Mm-hmm. They need to make this place bigger. They chose a spot in Moorfield and had a renowned architect called Robert Hook design the new building. It was a building that could house over a hundred lunatics. And within two years of deciding to build it, so this is from them deciding we need a bigger place. Within two years, the new bedlam was ready for its first patients. And if this seems quick for a 540 foot long four story building. It's because it is. Stay tuned. (laughs) It was a facade. (laughs) It was all made of balsa wood. Now, there was an issue immediately in that the male and female patients could mix on each floor uh, and there might be a risk of things like i don't know rapes uh, resulting in pregnancies but the governors discussed it and they decided that adding iron gates would ruin the aesthetic uh, of the interior and they had paid to have a you know a renowned architect do it so they instead decided uh, that they would instruct the patients not to wander off their own wings and that would be enough fair enough yeah you know, for people with florid mental illness, if you tell them something, they're going to take it at face value and they're well known for being able to follow instruction. So with their new building... How and much f- money did they save? What, on the Iron Gates? Yeah. We're talking dozens of pounds, probably, <laughs> at that point. 
So they had a new building and a forward-thinking physician in the newly appointed Dr Richard Hale. And it seemed that Bedlam would finally be able to turn around its deservedly poor reputation. So was it well known in in London that this place was Yeah, even to this point, it was sort of like shorthand for, you know, a a terrible place to end up, like the lowest of the low. Right. Um, people write it's it's the sort of thing that a mother would say to yeah if you don't behave I will send send you you to Bedlam Bedlam. and the kids would know what that meant yeah so you had Dr Richard Hale though and he standardised procedures he actually as the physician visited the hospital regularly because oh, so Crook never went there. He went very occasionally, but to there was get, no to get his bag of money. Yeah, there was no stipulation <laughs> that he had to attend regular ward rounds or anything. Um, and he even convinced the governors to create a new wing specifically for incurable lunatics. Because oh, so they'd made the the distinction. Well, what did they... anyone ever get out of this place? Yeah, yeah. So some people were like, some people would have a mental break and would recover despite what happened to them here. Christ, it was basically a place to hang, hold people. Um, while they go through traumas. Yeah, while they go through traumas. So a lot of it would have been grief and things like that because as part of the admissions procedure, they would turn away people who were incurable because after a certain amount of time, an incurable lunatic, the families are going to stop sending money and then you've got this drain on resources. You want people who are going to come in, family are going to keep giving loads of money, and then eventually they're going to get better anyway, so then you send them out, right. and you can bring in another one. So you're keeping that turnover of people who haven't wasted all of their resources looking after their relatives. But he, he thought, you know, it might be good if we actually look after the people who are really suffering from so is he a, major is mental he health issues. a bit issues. of a better, a better man? He's a, he's a great man. Is he, though? Yeah, well, for the time, he was really forward-thinking. It's thinking. always for the time, isn't it? Yeah, but he died in 1728. Uh, just a few months after, they did actually open the wing for incurable lunatics. What did he die of? He just died. He was quite old. It wasn't considered a plum um, appointment at this point. Uh, But Bedlam was dealing with another issue. The amount of people with mental health issues was rising, and it was clear that more beds were needed. To fill this gap, a number of doctors, enterprising doctors, uh, began opening lucrative private madhouses. So they've they've taken this... um... So Bedlam's charitably funded, and it's overseen by governors. They were just opening their own places that they were calling madhouses. These establishments had no assessment procedures, so they weren't turning people away. Yep, Uh, And were routinely taking patients on the say-so of relatives alone. Uh, So, yeah, if, if I turned up with you and told them that you were mad, that would be enough to get you committed. Could I, in turn, say you were mad? They take us both. No, no, it's it's first come, first served. If I've, if I've said you're mad, you can't say I'm mad so because you're, you're already been established as being mad. So you're taking me out for, like, a nice breakfast. Yeah, and as we're walking past a, just a private building, I, I suddenly turn to the person at the door and go, this one's mad. <laughs> and you turn around and go, no, you're mad. And it's like, well, that's what a mad person would say. Yeah. If anything, he's just proved my point. Can you take him away, please? Um. But... In, in return for doing this, they expected to be paid quite a bit to house that lunatic. So it's basically a way of getting rid of um, relatives N- who are a bit... Yeah, <laughs> right. nuisance relatives. You you basically pay to have them placed in a private madhouse. But as a result, Bedlam was re- losing revenue to the point where it ran the risk of going bankrupt. So because they were being picky and they were actually, you know, to be fair to them, looking for some, the, the some level of Bedlam's now proof. become a standard... Yeah, but they're looking for some level of proof that that person might be, yeah. Oh, God. 
So the board, they needed a forward-thinking physician to take the reins and to help to steer them back to financial security. What they got was a young Scotsman by the name of James Munro. Well, I know this name. Well, Dr. Munro, he had no previous experience as a mad doctor, and that's his term, not mine. Right. Okay. And he had quickly implemented a regime, a regime straight out of the Middle Ages. Patients were prescribed regular courses of induced vomiting. It was mad a term that yeah, he, he came was, across at this time. Yeah, he was known as a mad doctor. That was a, a job title. Yeah. Um, so patients would be um, given courses of induced vomiting, bloodletting, and purging of the bowels. So bloodletting, that's just yeah, trying to get the bad blood out. Yeah. And this was in spite of common medical opinion already indicating that there was no benefit to such practices. So it isn't like he can use the defence of it's what everyone was doing at the time. So when he said forward-thinking doctor? Uh, yes, they didn't get one of those. Right, okay. They got Dr. Munro. Uh, it was so extreme that under James, patients at Bedlam were regularly discharged or refused admission entirely because Dr. Munro felt that they were too weak to survive his courses of treatment. So basically, he didn't, want to, he didn't want patients to die on him, so he needed the strongest mad people he could get because those would be the only people who would be able to survive his course of treatment. Monroe never produced any studies or books to provide evidence for his treatments. Because he couldn't read. He didn't see the point. But as the physician of Bedlam, he was the most famous mad doctor in the country, and as such, he set back the understanding of mental illness significantly, because his reputation alone was enough to shout down other people who might be pointing what out what he's doing was wrong. What year are we in right now? We're in 1729 at the moment. So 200 and... What, 40 years later? Well, nearly 300 years later now. No, no, I mean, but 240 years later, they're Mm. still using... Well, they're trying electric shock therapy. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. We're still used to this day. Electric shock. Why? Because it does help some people. Does it really? Yeah. They don't know why, but it does. They don't know why. Really? Yeah. But it does. So there you go. So how do you know? Obviously, it won't work on everybody. So you just—is that like a last resort? Pretty much. Just bite on this bit of wood. So whilst whilst Doctor Monroe was very archaic in his medical thinking, luckily electroshock ter- therapy hadn't been invented at this point. Um, he was very very forward thinking in terms of business. So rather than protecting Bedlam from the rise of private madhouses, Dr. Monroe used his reputation to build a network of private madhouses with the Monroe name attached, funneling the patients from the wealthiest families into one of his private facilities rather than admitting them to Bedlam. So he's starving Bedlam of the much-needed funds. To replace this, he encouraged the practice of public visiting in Bedlam for a small fee to look at the insane people. His extreme treatments and continued use of restraint ensured that there was a good show, and it is thought that tens of thousands of people walked the galleries of Bedlam each year. The hospital also became a notorious spot for prostitution. Sorry, as you were describing Speaking, these... the cat went down the stairs. It's not a person, don't worry. Oh, God, it shit me up. Yeah. So, in 1751, Dr Munro, aged 71 at this point, decided he needed help to perform his bedlam duties. So he asked the governors for permission to take on an apprentice. So he's thinking, don't want to leave him without, with, with someone who's not, doesn't understand the ropes of this. Yeah. And I need to be able to give someone a full 
handover of how I mean, you I do want this. To share the knowledge yeah. that I've gained. Uh, and when it was granted, because they thought this is a good idea, he appointed Dr. Munro to the post. <laughs> to be specific, that's Dr. John Munro, his son. Oh, good. A year later, James died, and John took the vacant post from his father. Any hopes that he might be more forward-thinking than his father were quickly dashed as he continued with exactly the same treatments. Even worse, reformers managed to get free public access. Um, managed to get free public access to Bedlam Band, so reformers thought that it would be a good idea to stop the public visitation. But where's the money going to come from, Joe? Well. It's not just that, because although it was well-meaning, this resulted in practically no oversight in how Bedlam was being run and how they were treating their patients, because nobody was seeing it. As the governors were quite powerful people, and they'd managed to ensure that Bedlam was the only asylum in the country that was exempt from government oversight and inspection. Why? How is this possible? Because they knew people in the government, and they didn't want what they were doing at Bedlam to be subject to the same regulations as the other madhouses and they managed to get that through so by taking away the public access you took away the only people outside of the governors it's just hell on earth yeah now they have no oversight essentially Uh, when another physician named William Batty wrote a paper detailing how terrible and backward the treatments at Bedlam were John Monroe wrote a response and rather than offering proof of the benefits of the treatment that he was offering uh, he made a series of personal attacks against Dr. Batty. Fair enough. So and Dr. Batty came with him with reasonable questions about how he's purging and bloodletting helping these patients. And he came back with, well, you're an idiot. I'm fat. Yeah. And I don't like your moustache, sir. So have that. Dr. Batty asked to visit Bedlam to see the treatments firsthand. Uh, and Monroe refused. So Batty paid £40, joined the board of governors and used this privilege to visit anyway. <laughs> 40 quid yeah, 40 quid uh, what he saw repulsed him so much that he became the head physician of a rival asylum called St Luke's which was built directly across a park from Bedlam Hospital so the two hospitals faced each other oh my gosh. across a park oh that moment when you've been wheeled <laughs> and you're wondering which way you're going yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're in no, the no, park no, no. Oh. Oh, don't worry the two would not stay neighbours for long though as the governors of Bedlam Hospital had just discovered that the hospital, you remember how I said it was built quite quickly? Yeah. It had been built with no foundations at all and was literally falling apart. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, so that's how you get to build a building very quick, when you just start to build the brickwork on raw earth. What were the users' foundations back then? I'm guessing they were using the same sorts of thing they use now, just packed down stones. You dig a deep trench, fill it with stones and stuff. Right. You don't do that now, Joe. Well, the, the same not as how you, you build a house. <laughs> Why ask the question of the person who's never built anything? I'm, I'm assuming there were, you know, foundations were a thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, so they needed to move on. It's sort of a blessing for these for the people that are in the hospital at this point that Is they it? didn't build foundations. Well, it's not because when I say it was literally falling apart, bits of the walls have fallen down. Parts of it were unusable. There were drafts everywhere. But they were still having to run it as a going concern. And they needed to move on the cheap quickly. Going, oh, they're just going to move? Yeah. I thought, like, it's, it's crumbling and someone's going to step in and go, okay. No, let's no. Let's move it, them all to St. Luke's. It, it's crumbling and people are stepping in and going, right, we're going to have to double up cell usage and we're going to have to just... Well, I know they're close to an open section of wall where weather can get in, but... They're literally just putting wallpaper up. 
pretty much. Right. <laughs> they're not they're not thinking about the welfare of the patients here, don't worry. They've not changed. Um so they need to move on the cheap and they There's decided... a guy holding a can of paint looking at a crack, trying to weigh it up. <laughs> <laughs> they decided one of the ways to make it cheaper was rather than pay an architect, they would hold a contest to design a new building, uh, which they were going to try and locate in a cheaper part of London. Because um, since they built Bedlam, um, the new Bedlam, the prices of property and land in Moorfields have gone up significantly. So they thought if they just sold the land that the hospital stood on and tried to buy in a cheap part of London, they would hopefully have enough to build a different hospital there. So um, aspects from the three winning designs were included in the final plans, as well as a number of ideas from a man named Matthews, who was doubly qualified to design the asylum, being that he was both a trained architect and an inmate of Bedlam at the time. Wow. So he, he helped to design the place that he would later be housed in. Oh my God. Yeah. What did he have? What was his symptoms? Uh, he had a delusion that there was a mind control device being constructed. And actually, if you look into him, um, there are pictures. So one of the research books that I read through had pictures of, he was asked to draw the device that was being used to control his mind. And he drew, and it was like a giant fan that blew thoughts across London to him. And so gave like him a, intrusive thoughts. So what would he be called now? Like a paranoid well, yeah. schizophrenic or something like that? Something, or is that dated? No, no, no. It's, it, he had paranoia, definitely, right. and delusions. So he's suffering from paranoid delusions. Um, but he, he did have some really good ideas about how to design Bedlam so that, you know, it was a little bit less rapey and things like that. I mean, I'm guessing it was him who decided that these wings would actually have doors on them to separate between the different Mario classes of people. door on if you chain to your bed. Well, in the interim, because obviously it would take time to build this, uh, John brought another apprentice physician in. Uh, he brought in the well-qualified Dr. Munro. But don't worry, because this was his son, Thomas. Uh, Thomas kept up the same treatments as his father and grandfather. Oh my God. But he wasn't even interested in Bedlam. He was more interested in the art world. <laughs> he wanted to be an artist. Did he? Yeah. This was the family business. He had to do Did it. Did he have a talent for it? Uh, well... We'll talk about that because he barely visited the hospital, embezzled money, but he embezzled the money, not like his dad and granddad, to put into private mad hospitals and things acrylics. like that. Well, yeah, to be able to patronise budding young artists such as JMW Turner. No. Yeah, so money embezzled from Bedlam probably indirectly helped launch Turner's art career. Even worse for young Thomas, because he doesn't really want to be the doctor at Bedlam anyway. Pesky reformers had convinced MPs to actually inspect Bedlam for the first time in 600 years. So they'd... Find, 600 years this has they been about? They hadn't been inspecting it, yeah. It had been housing mad people for 600 years. Oh and it had never been inspected. I can't believe it lasted that long. Yeah, well, Thomas... And the uh, building at this point is 600 years old. No, this is, the, this is the second building that's crumbling, and they're about to move to a third. But in terms of an institution... It started oh, out fir- as the little priory. Yeah, yeah. It moved to this new one that's falling apart. So how long was the new one? Uh, the new one was only there was for the just over a hundred. The second one was just over a hundred years. It oh. lasted before it fell apart. So Thomas oversaw the transfer of the new building at St George's Fields, but weeks later he was removed from his post because the MPs insisted that he was grossly incompetent, uh, which was true. <laughs> 
But the governors tried to block this and said, no, 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 we have the right to pick. And Parliament said, OK, you do have the right to pick, but we will stop all government funding if you don't get rid of him. So you have the right to pick between keeping a doctor who isn't interested in being a doctor, is more interested in art, and having no funding from us, or getting rid of the guy who doesn't want to be there and will continue to fund you. So they... Kept him. No, they got rid of him. Oh. And they were going to be forced to appoint a new head physician. And they chose, out of all the eminent physicians who were wanting to get in there in a brand new facility and really turn this place around... His brother. An inexperienced 26-year-old doctor by the name Dr. Munro. <laughs> it's not... Edward Munro. <laughs> is it his brother? No, no, no. This is his nephew, I believe. Um... But with the advent of regular government inspections and actual research into mental health, Edward was forced to abandon the tried and tested family treatments of bloodletting, purging and vomiting. Uh, And when he retired in 1855, his own son Henry, Dr. Henry Munro, was too busy working as a physician at St. Luke's Asylum uh, to continue the family legacy. So there was another there was another Dr. Munro, but he was quite happy to be working at the forward thinking St. Luke's Asylum and did not really want to go back to the family business, as it were. Uh, By this point, the Munro dynasty over Bedlam had lasted 125 years of the same procedures of the same procedures. And because it was still considered all through that period to be the eminent, the, the top level of mental health care it set all other developments back considerably right so this one family managed to hold back mental health care by over a hundred years just because they couldn't be asked to to even research or to in many cases visit the patients the next head physician it's just a scam that was well oh yeah it was a great scam for them yeah i mean it paid for art it's great yeah. And you you didn't have to visit. I mean, they were supposed to visit weekly and they couldn't be bothered visiting weekly most of the time. So it wasn't like they were being asked to actually stay at the hospital on a nine to five job and look after the patients. And there was also an apocryphy there. And a lot of the times the Munros would just let the apocryphy pretty much do all of the day to day, making sure the patients weren't dead and they'd only come in to show the faces when they needed to. The next physician, head physician, Dr. Charles Hood, instigated reforms such as encouraging patients to do things like stay clean uh, and engage in meaningful activity. So gave them a purpose. Uh, Chains were a thing of the past. And in fact, he was able to rebrand Bedlam. Where did Dorothy Lawrence go? Uh, She went to a different place. I can't remember where it was. She didn't end up in Bedlam, did she? She didn't end up in Bedlam, no. Uh, I'm so far away from the mic. I've been talking like so far away. It's okay. It was no longer as well called an asylum. It was under Dr. Charles Hood, referred to as a psychiatric hospital. Bedlam moved once more in 1930s to a site in Kent, where it is still operating to this day... As Bedlam. ...as part of the largest mental health NHS trust in the country. Yep. You can still visit the St. George's Field building, though, as it now houses the Imperial War Museum. 
combining the horrors of war with the despair of untreated lunatics to ensure the most intense hauntings possible. I'd really like to go there. Yeah, well, that that is the story. Have you been? No, no, I've not been to the Imperial War Museum, but it's housed in the old site of Bedlam Hospital. So, so the same brick? Yep, yep. Fucking hell. Has it got foundations? Well, that one does, because it's still there to this day, I mean... <laughs> I think they learned the lesson. They probably turned up I mean, to it inspect this one. lasted a hundred years. Yeah. Without without foundations. That's just unbelievable. But apparently it started like the signs were there in like ten years that something was wrong, and they just kept bodging it because it was always cheaper. Yeah. Every time they had an inspection, it was like, right, we think you need to totally overhaul this place, and they said, right, if we didn't want to pay for that, what would keep it going? Well, we can kind of redo this bit of brickwork, and we can kind of try and um, you know put some iron rods through this bit to kind of hold it together but this is only this is only a temporary fix and they're like okay but that's cheaper yeah well yeah it's, of course it's cheaper because it's not really fixing the problem do that we'll look at it again in 10 years yeah when there's another one yeah, yeah. and then it kept happening until eventually it's like and is there a cheaper option no <laughs> you've exhausted all of the fixes all of the si- good news though You've yeah. waited long enough that the land is worth... <laughs> yeah. You played the long game and weirdly it worked out yeah. for you in this one instance. Oh, bless them. So that, that is the story of Bedlam Hospital. That was really interesting. Mm. Well written, Joe. Enjoyed that one. Good. That's, that's fun. Have you noticed how my eyes are completely going? <laughs> <laughs> Jack's going to be asleep in about 10 minutes. I'm, I'm, I've got to drive home. Yeah, I'm seriously concerned about your fitness to drive. I don't think we can let you. You're sleeping on this desk. Do I have to? <laughs> <laughs> Just clear it. Aggressively put you to bed in a sleeping bag. I've got... Oh God, imagine sleeping in a sleeping bag on a night this hot. <laughs> I'd kill you. I'd inadvertently kill you. It was, yeah. He appeared it's, it's, to cook his brother. <laughs> Basted him in his roast. own fat. <laughs> yeah. Christ. God, I wonder how long this is, because it's two episodes back to back. This is going to be like, yeah, okay, that's that's too long. <laughs> We're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be editing this Bye. a lot. Bye. <laughs>